Romans chapter 5, we'll pick up in verse 1. I recognize that week to week there's some people that haven't been here through the study. So I'll remind you that we are studying the book of Romans from beginning to end, a study that we're titling God's Amazing Grace. It just so happens that chapter 5, and specifically the first part of chapter 5, really form the pinnacle of the discussion and the highlighting of the amazing grace of God. Everything that comes after chapter 5 really harkens back to what we're going to learn today in chapter 5. This is possibly one of the most spectacular and full passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. It is fantastic. Now, we got here by making our way through chapters 1 through 4, right? And we've talked about the fact that chapters 1 through 4, it's a courtroom, a courthouse scene. The apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, has put the whole world on trial, and he makes his case just like a lawyer might. He makes his case for failure, the failure of all mankind, religious, irreligious. All mankind has failed to obtain to the perfection and the holiness and the glory of God. Everyone's fallen short. And he goes through that. So then the question is, well, if everybody's failed, what's next? What hope is there? And then Paul says, I'm glad you asked. And he makes the case for faith. If we can't get to God, if we can't climb the ladder of morality and righteousness by our own good works and our own doing, then Paul says, then the only hope we have left is to just trust God, to just come to him believing him. And he outlines that from the life of Abraham. And that brought us to the end of chapter four. Now, chapter five If we think about the case for faith, looking at how does a sinful human being approach a holy and righteous God, and the answer to that is faith, the other question has to be, why would a holy and righteous God want anything to do with a sinful and depraved humankind? I mean, we watch the news. We see what's going on in the world. Why doesn't God say, well, forget it all. Let them just chew themselves up and be done with it, and I'll start over. The question is, where do we go from there? And Paul makes then the case from God's side, the case for grace. And so we'll be talking a lot about the grace of God. Verse 1 of chapter 5 begins with the word therefore, which means it's connected back to the fact that Paul's now established the fact that we're made right with God by faith. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, not by our works or our good deeds or our religious routines or our self-righteousness or any of those things. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And verse three, not only that, but wait, there's more, he says, We also glory or boast in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, verse 5 says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, amen is right. Paul sort of unleashes this whole section is theological term upon theological term. I mean, he mentions being justified. He mentions faith. He mentions peace. He mentions rejoicing. He mentions glory. He mentions tribulation. He mentions the Holy Spirit. And for the first time, he mentions the love of God. 
And then he's going to go on to mention reconciliation and, and wrath and all these things. So this is a challenging passage. It is filled with spiritual truth. And so we're just going to try to walk our way one step at a time through this so we can understand what in the world he's saying and what in the world it means for you and I today. So again, he begins with having been justified by faith. That's an established thing. He's established in the courtroom, this case for coming to God like Abraham, just believing him, just trusting in God, trusting what he says and being made right with God through that. That's the word justified means to be declared innocent. And that doesn't come by my hard work. It comes by Jesus' precious sacrifice. Now that that's been established, he's going to show us, here's the results in a person's life. Here's the results in a church. Here's the results in a community where people understand that they've been made right with God by their faith, by their trust and confidence in him and not their confidence in themselves. What's the first result? He says, we have peace with God. That's awesome. Now, see, we live on this side of the Reformation. Maybe you don't know what the Reformation is. Maybe you've heard of it. Years ago, a man named Martin Luther, where we get the name for the Lutheran church. Martin Luther was a monk, and he sort of rejected some of the abuses that he was seeing in the Catholic church in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, and I know we live now, but I want to give you a sense of those words, we have peace with God, what they've meant throughout history. Because again, we live in this day where we really understand the love and grace of God, but things haven't always been that way, have they, church? If you've ever studied church history, you know that in the Middle Ages, people, good people just like yourselves who wanted to be close to God, were always living, because of the religious system, always living in fear of a God that was angry and displeased with their performance. That every step of the way, God was just waiting to crush them or be displeased with them. Matter of fact, I have with me here a book called Here I Stand, began to read this, The Life of Martin Luther. It's a biography. And just to give you an idea of life, religious life during those days, Martin Luther, it says, suffered from the savage's fear of a malevolent deity. That's the opposite of benevolent, giving or good. Malevolent is wicked or evil. They believed and suffered from this fear of a wicked God, an evil God, a hurtful God, the enemy of man, capricious, easily and unwittingly offended if sacred places be violated or magical formulas mispronounced. That was their view of God. Martin Luther went on to join a monastery thinking that this would be a way to a closer and more pleasing walk with God. And he said one of the privileges of monastic life was that it emancipated the sinner from all distractions and, listen, freed him to save his soul by practicing the counsels of perfection. Not simply charity or giving and sobriety and love, but also chastity or purity, poverty, obedience, fastings, vigils, and mortifications of the flesh. And there was tons of, of history and stories you can see about people going on pilgrimage and, and flogging themselves and just trying to beat themselves up for their sin and trying to somehow earn God's favor and never really knowing when enough is enough. You see, there's people, and I bring this up because when we read, we have peace with God. There are some people that have set about in life to find peace without God. We don't believe in God. We write God out of the story of human history, and yet we're still stuck with trying to somehow find peace in the world. 
And so I embrace my desires. I embrace sin. I call it normal. I say I was born this way, whatever the case might be. And somehow I play manipulative games in my mind to try to find peace in the world, even though without God, there can be no meaning or purpose or right or wrong. Everything becomes relative. And it's very hard to find peace when you don't know up from down. So there are those that try to find peace without God. But for them, those that try to find peace with God, to try to find peace with God through your performance of duties and religious routines and rituals, the problem is, is the minute you say, okay, God, I'm going to please you by what I do. So the clothes that I wear, or it's, I'm going to study my Bible every day for an hour. Wouldn't that be a good thing? But who says that's enough? Why not two hours? Wouldn't two hours be better than an hour? And maybe three hours would be better than two. And then what about prayer? Well, I'm going to pray for an hour a day. Well, that'd be awesome. We'll take five minutes from most people. But then how do you know that's enough? Do you see the cycle of self-righteousness, the problem and why there's never any peace is you never know if you've done enough. And that's what Martin Luther found. He never felt that his good deeds had actually compensated for his sin. And so you know what the church allowed them to do then? Was, well, maybe you're failing, but other people are succeeding, and you can buy an indulgence and then credit that saint's righteousness to your account. And if you buy it, always living in fear, always living in struggle, never knowing that understanding of a peace with God. And so when Martin Luther discovers the book of Romans, that the just shall live by faith, it radically transforms his life, just as it still does today when people, when God's people understand grace, it changes your home. It changes the church. It changes your life. Because now, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not through my works. It's not through me. It's through Jesus. My trust isn't in me. Come on, church. Tell me you don't trust yourself to do such an important thing. I don't trust me, but I can trust Jesus. He's perfect. And it's his righteousness and perfection that gets credited to my account. Therefore, gang, guess what? You can have peace. You got any relationships in your life that are kind of not lining up where there's some drama where there's some conflict. You know how emotionally fatiguing that is, that conflict, where you just never know where you stand with that person, just never know, are they, are you in, are you out? There's just no peace. Imagine that with God. You see, the people that say, well, I'm going to have peace without God, they might be able to find it circumstantially. The problem is, is even though they feel at peace with themselves, they're not at peace with God apart from Jesus Christ. And then at the end of their life, there is a time of reckoning and a time of judgment where God will be to them an enemy because they've offended, they've rebelled against the holy and righteous God. So we have the fact that we can read this together. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It means the war is over, that you can lay it down. You can just enjoy and relax and receive from God. Why? Because you're at peace. There's peace. And watch what happens next. He begins to go through the next result. So the first result of being justified by faith is this deep sense and understanding that I'm at peace with God. That's not a feeling. It's a truth. doesn't matter how you feel. You might feel God is always getting you where your feelings are wrong. 
You're at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Well, what comes next, he says, and also, verse 2, through whom, through Jesus, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You notice he said, this grace in which we stand. You're never saved by your faith. You're saved by God's grace. And we'll talk about that in the next section. You are saved by the grace, the goodness, the kindness, the generosity of God. That's how you got saved. Your faith is the way you lay hold of that. You got to believe that it's true and take a hold of it. And then God didn't save you by grace. So then you could sustain your own salvation by your works. He says, it started with grace and it continues in grace. Did you see that? You have access by faith into this grace, this goodness and kindness of God in which we stand. That's where we stay. We stay in the grace of God. It never flip-flops to, well, God got me started and now it's up to me to take it on from here. It never goes that way. It's always grace. And then he introduces another word and he introduces the word rejoice. Now we can talk about joy and rejoicing. He says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What a switch from chapter three, if you have been around for that. In chapter three, we'd all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now, having been justified by faith, now that faith enters the picture, now we have hope. Let's talk about a couple of words here. Let's talk about the word hope, because hope can be a misleading word. You could read that and say, well, I hope that maybe I will attain to the glory of God. I hope. I'm not sure, but that's what I'm hoping for. That's not the biblical word for hope. Some of you know, years ago, I worked as an occupational therapist at UVA. It was right around the time that, if you remember, Christopher Reeves, the man that played Superman, he'd had a horse accident up in Northern Virginia. He was taken to UVA, was in the hospital there, and I happened to be his occupational therapist while he was inpatient at UVA. So I became interested in his story and followed his story through until he passed away a few years back. But what was interesting to me and why this relates to this discussion of hope is that he held out hope that he would walk again. And he never did. And that was a hope that disappoints. Because some of you, I have to say that because some of you have hoped for something and it hasn't come true. And you've been disappointed. And so when we read the hope of the glory of God, we have to recognize that biblical hope is not a hope that's rooted in you or your desires. It's a hope that's rooted in Jesus Christ and his provision. So that hope never disappoints. And so when we say we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, it's a confident expectation of a coming good. That's what the biblical word hope means. It's not a maybe yes, maybe no. It's a, I know what's coming. I just haven't seen it yet. It's coming. And I can be confident of that. And when you know that, when you know that the whole thing is sealed up in Christ, and you get set free from the treadmill of performance, and am I doing enough, and am I living right, and am I doing the right things, and then all of a sudden joy starts to fill your heart. Legalism is exhausting. Maybe you grew up in the kind of home that I know many of you have grown up in, where mom and dad, or especially dad, you could never please him. Just hard man. He earned his way, and you're going to earn your way, and never told you he loved you. Never heard a kind word. If there was anything said, it was only criticism or shame. And you grew up in that kind of home. And there's no joy there. There's no hope there. It's discouraging. 
and it's full of law and legalism and it's full of discouragement. And some people see God like that. Some people say, I'm not going to become a Christian because I don't know if I'll ever be able to do it. What? You're right. You'll never be able to do it. Join the club. Welcome to the family. The family of none of us could do it. I'm somehow I'll disappoint God. Right, you will. That's what grace is all about. Really? Yeah, really. Really. What you receive from God has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. And that way, the church and you can rejoice. How many have ever been to church where you go in and as they say, it looks like everybody's been baptized in lemon juice. I mean, everybody, the problem isn't the grace of God for us. The problem is our grace for each other. That's the real challenge of church is God. We thank you for the grace for us, but I ain't being gracious to them. They're going to have to work for my love. They better do what's right in my eyes. But then when you get to a church where there's grace, all different kinds of people, all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of places in their walk with God. And when grace fills that community, there's so much freedom for people to be working this out with God. There's so much freedom for people to be growing and enjoying and learning. And there's peace there. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of church I want to be part of. And so we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, the Ginsu knife commercial. How many of you remember the Ginsu knife commercial? Some of the younger folks are, ah, but wait, there's more. And this is kind of radical. He says, not only do we have hope in the glory of God, but we also glory, or the word is boast, inwardly, we boast in tribulations. What's that doing there? I mean, we were doing so good. But now he has to bring up trials. The word tribulation is a Greek word that means pressures. Pressures. The ancient word, the Latin word where we get tribulation is the word tribulum. And it's the word for that, the press, the gigantic, heavy stone that when you were separating the grain of wheat from the husk, the chaff, you would just run it over with this heavy stone, put pressure on it, and it would separate the husk from the seed that was useful. The part that's not useful from the part that is. And you'd use the tribulum to run that over, to create pressure, to separate. That's what tribulation is. And, you know, sometimes people think that, well, when I become a Christian, all my problems are going to go away. No more pressures. How many of you have learned that's not the case? Matter of fact, isn't it quite the opposite? You see, when I wasn't saved and I was hanging out in the world, I had no pressure from the world. Me and the world were pals. I was doing everything the world told me to do. The problem was I was not at peace with God. So I had to make a choice. Now, I want to choose peace with God. But that put me where? In rebellion against the world. And that brings struggle. The minute you stand for Jesus, that brings pressure. There's internal pressures of, I want to do what's right. There's external pressures of people pressuring me about sexual choices or other kinds of choices, sin and these other things. And then just the pressures of being a Christian and people coming down on us academically as if we checked our brains at the door to become Christians and how dare we believe that in the beginning God created. So there's pressure. One other reason I think he brings this up is because sometimes we misinterpret our circumstances. See, in the days of Jesus, people believe that struggles and tribulations and trials were because God was angry at you, right? If you had leprosy, 
That was the strike of God. God was angry at you. He was punishing you. And we even read of this in the New Testament, people fearing God and the lepers being cast away and set apart. And then Jesus does what? He touches them and heals them. And so these things, think about the book of Job, where the Job's friends said, well, Job, if you would just get right with God, all your problems would go away. And so the danger is we have to deal with struggles in our life because we say, okay, we have peace with God, but yet it still feels like God is getting me. How many of you have ever said, ever uttered the words, why is God doing this to me? Yeah? You've gone through something tough, going through some struggle, going through some trials. Why is God doing this? And you feel like, or sometimes you might say, why is God punishing me? Can I just tell you, you need to refer back to Romans 5, the owner's manual, and remind yourself that you have peace with God. Whatever it is you're going through, as a Christian, it is not that you're being punished by God. Pruned, maybe, but not punished. Sometimes in tribulations, the useless husk is being separated from the useful seed. And that's why Paul says, as a Christian, by faith, we can actually boast in trials. In some ways, they're proof that we're walking different from the world. And he shows that we know what these trials produce. He says, we glory in tribulations because we know that tribulation produces perseverance, a bearing up under a load or a trial. And perseverance produces proven character, and character produces hope, real hope. So I don't know what it is that you're going through, went through, will go through, but as a Christian, you don't have to worry, is God mad at me? I mean, sometimes you go, oh, I'm going to have to read more. These bad things are happening, I'm going to have to pray more. And that may be true, it may be okay, but not because God is angry at you and punishing you. What he says here is actually pressures are productive. Did you see that? Pressure is productive. Now, I've been going to the gym since I was like 16 years old. And I love going to the gym and hitting the weights and whatnot. But what I've learned over the years is that if I go in and, and I just sit on the bench and never put any weight on the bar, I don't really get any stronger. Now, I wish I could stay home and watch videos about exercise and get stronger that way. And that's how we want to be as Christians. We want to come, we want to listen to the Bible and get stronger. But pressure produces strength, character. And if you care about character, what you're seeing is God's character-building program. He will allow struggles in your life because it's actually those struggles, that pressure, it's resistance training that causes growth. And don't God's people need to grow? I mean, don't we need to mature and grow in character? And that's approved character. As you go through those trials, your character is revealed as you're trusting the Lord and watching his faithfulness. How many of you have learned in a trial how faithful God is? He's gotten you through. I mean, you're here today. He's gotten you through, and that makes you stronger, stronger in trusting him. The challenge is a lot of people care less about character and more about pain-free living. So I'll even sin if it sets me free from confronting a struggle or being in a trial. People run to all kinds of things to avoid pain, avoid growth. And Paul says, I can glory in tribulations because I know that something else is happening, that character is being produced, changes are happening in my life, 
And then verse 5 says, and now this hope that is the result of this chain that Paul is introducing us to, now hope does not disappoint. Don't you want a hope that doesn't disappoint? Somebody's disappointed. I want a hope that doesn't disappoint. I ordered something off Amazon. Wasn't what I thought. I got it. This is disappointing. I want a hope that doesn't disappoint. And so he says, before, hope could be disappointing. But now, hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In that trial, through that time, you know God is there. Why? Because he's poured out his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit. That's an experiential thing. That's not something you can fake. That's not something you can just read about. That's something you experience that God's love has been poured into your heart. And therefore, when all of the responsibilities on God, I'll never be disappointed. I'll never be disappointed. And I'll never be disappointed that I trusted him. And you wouldn't be here if you were. Now, Paul's going to take this idea of the love of God poured into our hearts as, as if the person that's listening to him says, well, what do you mean the love of God? Paul, you haven't talked to us about the love of God. You've been talking about grace and wrath a lot but you haven't talked about the love of God. And he says, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about the love of God for a minute. He says, verse six, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is a mouthful. You see, the church oftentimes has presented the message to the world that will accept you. God will accept you when and if you look like us and talk like us and read the Bible we read and dress like us and you start to get your act straight and then you can come. Grace says, just bring on your ungodly self in. Come and find God. He's been looking for you. Come, I love the song, come just as you are. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Isn't that what he said? For when we were without strength, when we were helpless, when we were helpless to grapple our way to God and grasp for him through our own works when we're helpless and exhausted from trying. That's the minute when Christ stepped in. In due time, the due time is whenever you give up. Christ died for the ungodly. He came as a doctor for the sick, didn't he? He came to be a friend of sinners. That's radical. That means me, that's you. And you have to remember that because now you think, okay, I get saved, I get right with God, I'm coming to church. But now I have to earn God's love. Now somehow I'm, I'm never certain if God still loves me. Hey, if God loved you then, watch what he says next. For scarcely, verse seven, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. I mean, maybe if you're a pretty awesome person and everybody says, oh yeah, I know that person, they're awesome. Maybe someone would die for you. Maybe. Maybe for a righteous person, maybe someone would die for the Pope. Maybe someone would die for this good person that we perceive as a righteous or good person. But uh, come on, look around. I mean, who would die for me? Who would die for an opioid addict? Who would die for a sex offender? Who would die for some useless bag of trash, homeless on the gutters and skid row? Which of you would trade your life would move onto Skid Row so that they could move into your house and live your life. 
yeah, uh-uh, ain't happening. So maybe if you had a nice place, I might trade my life with yours. Maybe if you had a good job, maybe we could trade lives. Maybe I'd lay down my life for you. And that's our kind of love, right? That's a very human kind of love. That's a very sort of situational, earned kind of love. And this is what you got to know. Look at what Paul says next, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love. God demonstrates his own love toward us, toward me and toward you, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to get your act cleaned up. He didn't wait for you to pull yourself together. The roof didn't collapse when you came into church. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, who would do that? Who would do that for you? Who would show that kind of love for you and for me? Maybe family would, maybe. Maybe a close friend or two. But not if you're living like a jerk. Not if you're a loser and just destroying all the lives around you. But God saw you then. And he said, oh, he needs me. She needs me so bad. She needs me. And so that's when he lays down his life. That's unhuman, isn't it? That's only God. Only God would do that. You don't invent that kind of stuff. That's radical. That's undeserved. That's unconditional. And that's the love of God. And he demonstrated it toward us. How? Just look at the cross. Hang around until we get to Easter. The cross and the resurrection. So I don't know if God loves me. Stop it. What do you want him to do? You probably got a list. Much more having done that while you were still sinners. Much more than having now been justified or declared innocent by his blood. We shall be underlined that saved from wrath through him. Saved from any future judgment. God has given up the right to punish you because he put all of his punishment on Jesus. He can't punish you. You're innocent. He doesn't want to, never has wanted to. Having been justified by his blood, we're saved from wrath through him. So you see, I can tell you with great confidence, whatever it is you're going through, it's not punishment. It's not because God is angry. He loves you and you are accepted in the beloved, Ephesians chapter one tells it. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. So he's piling on these things saying, okay, if this happened, if when you were so far from God that you were near untouchable by any other human being, if that's when God reached out to you and he draws you close, then having done that and having reconciled you when you were an enemy, now you think he's just going to leave you to figure out life by yourself? I mean, that was the hardest thing. The rest is a piece of cake after that. If you've done that, then he's going to save you, continue to work in your life through his resurrection, through his resurrected life. It doesn't end when you get saved. It doesn't end when you accept God's grace by faith. That's when it starts. Oh, don't you wish you could tell people about that? Don't you wish you could give them a window into that life with God of his grace, just more and more and more grace he gives? So much more having been reconciled. What about that word reconciled? Can we talk about that for a minute? You've been reconciled to God. How many of you have a relationship that is on the outs? There's someone in your life that there's an old bitterness, old grudge. You're just, there's no relationship there. 
I'm not hanging out with them. They're not hanging out with me. There's a division there. Well, what in the world is going to bring that back together? And what about when that division is between you and God? Now, the issue is here, it's all done by Christ. The issue between you and God wasn't you working hard enough to make yourself, to put yourself in a position to be in a relationship with God. The issue is Jesus did it for you. All you contributed to the equation was being an enemy of God. That's what you were. You were not walking with God. But I'm a good person. Yeah, you're a good person, but you're not walking with God. You're not a godly person. We've dealt with that. And while you were an enemy, God reached out to you to rekindle that relationship that was lost in the garden. We don't have an angry God. See, people think that God is angry and that Jesus has to come and make God not be angry anymore so that we can come close to him. You've missed it. Does it say by this, Jesus demonstrates his love toward us? It said, God demonstrates his own love toward us. It was God's idea. And he and Jesus performed this together. It's God that loves you. He loves you just as you are. And he so desires a relationship with you. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, having been exchanged, that divided relationship for a unified one will be saved by his life. And, hey, Paul says there's more, verse 11. Not only that, look out, the word rejoice is coming again but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation that God was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world to himself, making a way. And I like this because if you think back to the courtroom, it says, now we rejoice in God. Previously, we were under the wrath of God. Isn't that where we started in chapter one? For the wrath of God has been revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. So by now, at the middle of chapter 5, now we find ourselves rejoicing in God. I think the church needs a little more of that, don't you? You know, I think there's a large portion of the church that is still living under the fear of God. And not the fear of God. There's a good fear of God. I'm talking about the bad fear of God. And the sign of that is there's no joy. There's no joy. You can rejoice in God. I want to set you free to rejoice in God, to just enjoy him. To rejoice means to to just have joy, to enjoy, to let joy enter in. And some of you really need that bad, don't you? Anybody need some joy? Not a lot I can rejoice about out there maybe, but man, I can rejoice in God because he is unchanging and eternal and he loves you and he reconciled you to himself. And that hope will never disappoint.